Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature magnetic cows, magic, tree men, brain-computer interfaces, and unlimited power. But first, here's the week in review with Jackie Hayes. Thanks, Ian. One of the most interesting stories to come up this week was about genetically modified plants in South Africa. Now, this isn't like the canola thing in New South Wales and Victoria where they're planting crops or anything. In this case, what scientists have done is actually make these genetically modified tobacco plants turn red in the presence of landmines. So there's actually a use for tobacco other than smoking. (laughs) Well, as long as you genetically modify it, I guess. Uh, So basically what is happening is there's this TNT, trinitrotoluene, that uh, is common in a lot of landmines. And as it breaks down, what they've made the plant do is turn red. So usually in the presence of this chemical, the flowers will turn red, not the actual plant. But what they've done is they've modified it so that the entire plant will turn red and then people will know that there's landmines around and avoid that area. So they'll know there's a decomposing landmine. How long does the landmine have to be there before the plant turns red? Ooh, I don't know. Good question. Because if they just plant the tobacco on top of the landmines, they'll blow up. So the tobacco has to already be there, I would think, unless they seed it from the air or something yeah. like that. So I maybe mean, you can seed it from the air and then you have to wait for it to grow up and hopefully in that time it'll, it'll be enough chemicals from a decomposing landmine to turn it red. There probably doesn't have to be a very high concentration of the chemicals and that's probably why they made it so that the entire plant will turn red, so that when you have just a germinating plant, then it will also be you know, changing colour. And imagine how elite... A cigarette rolled from tobacco from a minefield <laughs> has got to be. Um, well, I don't know about that. But, um, but I mean, landmines, they're pretty dangerous. There are still landmines, I think, in like 78 countries all over Afghanistan and Asia and parts of Africa. So, yeah, I think it's good that they're finding other uses for genetically modified plants. Yes. Let's spray all those places with tobacco. <laughs> Oh, Ian, you're such an optimist. Uh, So another story this week is about the tree man. Now, have you heard of the tree man? Is this the guy who had some weird freaky growth on his skin that made him look like he had bark? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's warts from the HPV virus, the human papoma virus which is also the same one that causes cervical cancer and that sort of thing. The similar strains, but not all of them are wart-causing. And he also had a, an immune deficiency. So this in combination meant that he couldn't fight off the warts and it just grew, like, all over his skin. And basically he was... The only job that he could get is in a travelling freak show 
So, so, and he looked, he looked like he was actually had bark growing on his, on his skin. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend going to the internet and doing a Google search because it's incredible. And then, uh, what happened was a, um, US dermatologist over at the University of Maryland saw it and actually diagnosed it. So, and then treated it. And now the tree man has had his six kilograms of warts cut off and has returned home safely. Wow. So he has one more, I believe, one more uh, operation to go to remove the final 300 grams of growths, and he'll just be on, you know, immune-boosting drugs to make sure they don't come back. Well, that's a wonderful success story for the power of the media and science. Yes, it is, actually, because this medicine got to go into a remote Indonesian village and treat this guy. So well done to... uh, Everyone who participates in the internet. And there was another interesting story, a piece of science that came from the internet, this time from Google Earth. Uh, What scientists have done is look at how cows align while they're grazing using Google Earth images. And you will not believe this one, but apparently cows, when they're grazing, align themselves facing north. Now, whose job was it to look at this? (laughs) I don't know, but probably some undergraduate, I'm guessing. <laughs> Do you think it was an accidental sort of thing that someone was just looking at lots of, just sort of having fun looking at Google Earth pictures and seeing all the cows and going, hold on a minute, they're all facing the same way? Well, actually, it's, I reckon it was quite a bit more analysis in it because farmers already knew that cows actually stand perpendicular to the sun when it's cold so they heat up and then when it's really really windy they stand so that like the wind you know gushes around them and doesn't like blow into them and make them cold again so I mean it does change depending on weather patterns so what they had to do was go and get the images of the days when there was fine weather and see how the cows were aligning so somebody had to have a clue already that there was that there might have been something going on yeah yeah I'm interested to know the backstory like how they what the inspiration was because I would not have expected that cows had a built-in compass. Well, exactly, right? I want to know how the hell cows are figuring out which way the magnetic field is pointing. And why? Well, because birds and turtles and fish are all well... Have, have compasses built in. That's well known. That's how they navigate around. But cows? Ah, oh, but hold on. Wild cows, like you know, bison and um, wild cattle types, of, of, of that, that, you know, when there were wild mm-hmm. cattle... They did migrate in oh. giant herds. So maybe in order for them to migrate successfully over the seasons, they had to have some sort of compass. Yeah, that's... Hey, speculate away. It could possibly be the reason. So that that study actually came from the Czech Republic. I was going to say it involved 8,500 cows. Uh, so I'm guessing that's actually pretty reliable. It's- very large That's sample a large number. That's sam- sample number. So if you're going camping, you're going to have a compass and lunch. Oh, Ian. That's despicable. Let's not eat the cows. They're cute. Uh, okay, I meant the- milk. <laughs> sure you did. Um, and the last news story this week is about uh, using magicians to basically help us figure out neuroscience. Now, you know quite a bit about this, don't you, Ian? I've seen you pulling some magic tricks before. 
Yeah, cognitive psychology and magic should have been friends a long time ago because magicians, as they say in the study, have been doing this for thousands of years and they've got pretty sophisticated techniques at finding all the gaps in the way we perceive the world. What do you mean, the gaps? Well, well the cognitive psychologists have found that we don't see the world as continuously as we think. You know, we sort of have this cartoon image of the world that our brain has generated from the brief glances around the room that our eyes have made, but we don't actually see the whole room at once, As but we perceive that we do. So a magician can distract you or misdirect you and pop something in that you don't see, but you think you're, you're looking all the time when you're not. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's how they got me that penny from behind my ear that time. Um <laughs> Yeah, so there was a conference over in Las Vegas, Nevada, where called the Magic of Consciousness. And basically, they were looking at a few things, like the fact that people are more likely to look at hand motions if they're circular hand motions, and less likely to look at them if they're direct hand motions. So um, basically, like, wave one hand in a big circle and then do something with the other hand, and people won't notice. Um, and also, the use of humour to distract people. So apparently people are less perceptive when they're laughing. So tell a wise joke, move one hand in a circle and then do whatever you need to do with the other hand and you're right. Because people are not multitasking as well as they think they are. Yes, exactly. Unless they're women, in which case they are, Ian. Unless you laugh and move your hands (laughs) in a circular motion. (laughs) Exactly. And that's it from this week in review. Thank you, Jackie. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Thousands of servicemen from Iraq are returning home with missing limbs. What technology is available to these soldiers to help them maintain the quality of life they knew before war? Mawson Karim explores. Let me tell you about the bionic man, Jesse Sullivan. Working as a lineman in May of 2001, Jesse was electrocuted with enough voltage to power homes from 9,000 to 10,000 of his customers. The electrical burns were so severe that both of Jesse's arms had to be amputated at the shoulder, with the wounds being closed with skin grafts. The grafts became hypersensitive, causing considerable pain. To relieve the pain, surgeons grafted four existing nerve endings from his shoulder onto the pectoral muscle of his chest. After about six months, those nerves grew into muscle. It turned out that electrical sensors on the graphs could detect thought-generated nerve impulses, even though Jesse's limbs were absent. When he thought about closing his hand, the nerves responsible for this action now caused a piece of his chest muscle to contract. In fact, when people press over points of the muscle, Jesse says that it feels as if they are touching his thumb or the palm of his hand. A sensor attached to a robotic arm was used to read the impulses from the chest, controlling the arm's movements. With his robotic arm, Jesse can perform motor actions, including putting on a hat, grabbing a pen, and shaving, all by the actions of thought. However, the pulse inputs of redirected nerves greatly limits the number of desirable manipulations. 
If the robotic arm could read the signals directly from the brain's motor cortex, greater degrees of movement would be possible. But there aren't that many people who are willing to let electrodes be inserted into their brain. There are two approaches to read the electrical signals of brain cells, invasive and non-invasive techniques. Non-invasive techniques use electroencephalograms, EEGs. An EEG cap, when placed over the head, reads the underlying electrical signals of the cortex. These signals are used to control brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs. An example of this is being introduced into the gaming world, where head devices read brain signals, allowing the user to control the computer game without using one's hands. Invasive techniques involve implanting a chip with many probes called a microarray over an area, usually the motor cortex. When the subject thinks about moving his arm, the neurons of the motor cortex fire and the microarray records the electrical signals. These signals may be processed by algorithms, which have been predetermined to interpret what the particular electrical signals mean. The algorithms determine the movement of the robotic arm. This technique has been used a number of times on monkeys, where after much practice, the animal is able to reach for food, then feed itself by thought-driven actions of the robotic arm. Such invasive technology has rarely been used in humans. A patient with tetraplegia was implanted with a 96-channel silicone-based microelectrode array in the motor hand area. By using imagined movements, the patient could control a computer cursor. The potential is huge, particularly for those who are locked in. Locked-in patients are awake and fully conscious, but do not have the ability to produce speech, limb, or facial movements. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or brainstem stroke, can render a person's body immobile, but leaves their cognitive ability intact. Let's go through some of the potential applications of future BCIs. Take, for instance, communication, perhaps the most fulfilling immediate use of BCIs. The ability for the locked-in patient to communicate to family members and caregivers can reintegrate the isolated patient with others. This may be simple interactions to make needs known, answer questions with a simple yes or no, and select among a small option of choices. Such communication systems already exist. Microswitches can be used to choose letters and words to write text and converse with synthetic speech. Systems could be set up to change the patient's environment, such as altering body position in an electric bed or wheelchair for comfort, or to manoeuvre a powered wheelchair. I've already mentioned the patient with tetraplegia who was implanted with the 96-channel silicone-based microelectrode array in the motor hand area. By using imagined movements, the patient could control a computer cursor. Connections to the internet allow for socialisation, education, entertainment, support groups, online chat, games, movies and music. Virtual environments for those locked in will allow patients to escape their bodily confines and explore virtual settings. This can be achieved in a non-invasive way with an EEG cap and plugging into an environment such as an online room. Such environments already exist. At the Immersive Virtual Environments Lab at University College London, people have road-tested the EEG caps and virtual environments. In a few hours of training, a lot of people are able to think left, think right, and move a cursor about the screen. If this is applied to a virtual environment, then one can turn left or turn right or walk down a street simply by thinking. And what about medical applications of BCIs? The ability of a BCI to communicate about symptoms such as shortness of breath, pain and its location, or a change in mood, may enable the detection of medical complications well before drug side effects or organ dysfunction becomes evident from vital signs and tests. 
Neuroprosthetic technology is predicted to be applied to a variety of targets in the nervous system, including for bladder and bowel control, pacing of the diaphragm, stimulation of the vagus nerve for control of epilepsy and chronic depression. So when can we expect to see these devices? Tomorrow? Day after tomorrow? Or decades? Let's put it into a little bit of historic context. There are many historic examples in technical history that have shown radical and sustained improvements, such as the number of transistors in Intel microprocessors. This is described by Moore's Law, where 40 to 60% performance increases per year. Additionally, the unit cost of a product declines by typically 20 to 30% each time the cumulative output of the product doubles. This is referred to as the law of experience. These two forces will work to push BCIs into the public domain in a practical and affordable manner. One author states that BCIs will first be adopted by handicapped individuals, followed by soldiers in combat, then for most other users of society for a variety of applications. The commercial application of BCIs will be a significant driver for BCIs to enter the market. For instance, there are about 225,000 to 290,000 individuals with spinal cord injury in the US alone who could benefit from BCI technology. That was Mawson Karim with the Brain Control Interface. Next up, Edward Flynn with Dim the Lights, the Rumsfeld Rap. Dim the Lights. The message is that there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. And each year we discover a few more of those unknown unknowns. Ah, dim the lights. That there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. You know, something's neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, I suppose. We now know we don't know. Goodness, uh, I don't. I shouldn't say I, uh, I. I don't think so. Although that's what I think. I believe what I said yesterday. I don't know what I said, uh, but but I, I know what I think, and uh, <laughs> I assume it's what I said. Low density, high demand assets. Uh, dim the lights. There are also unknown unknown. There are a whole series of things that ought to be looked at. We know of certain knowledge that we have, that we go on television and we say things that we know are absolutely not true. If I know the answer, I'll tell you the answer, and if I don't, I'll just respond cleverly. We have absolutely no evidence. 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 We have absolutely no evidence. And the lethality is multiples of what we have previously experienced. I believe what I said yesterday. Dim the lights. What we are seeing is not the war in Iraq. What we're seeing are slices of the war in Iraq. Ah! Ah! <laughs> oh, mackerel. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, I shouldn't get into this is diplomacy, and I don't do diplomacy. I am shocked. Sort of. 
stating what might be preferable uh, is simply stating what might be preferable. I would not say that the future is necessarily less predictable than the past. I think the past was, was not predictable when it started. If I said yes, that would then suggest that that might be the only place where it might be done, which would not be accurate, necessarily accurate. It would, might also not be inaccurate. I don't know what I said, but, but, but I, I know what I think. The dumbest thing anyone could do would be to stand up here and start previewing things that somebody's thinking about or not thinking about or starting to disabuse you of each thing somebody tells you that we're thinking about because then the first time we don't disabuse you, you'll say, oh, that's what they're going to do. Well, we don't know. And each year we discover a few more of those unknown unknowns. Oh, figure it out. I'm going to use all the power of my brain. Ah, dim the lights. And that was Edward Flynn with Dim the Lights, the Rumsfeld rap. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Broadcast nationally across the community radio network. Next up, it's Brian Lennon with the last word from the Live Futures 2020 Festival about fabricators providing alternative energy. Well, what I think about the Fab Lab is that business of making solar panels, solar cells, very, very cheaply, using a Fab Lab to build a machine that will make solar cells. Um, If it's a paint-on process, painting on circuits, painting on uh, various sorts of uh, um, materials that will uh, make your electricity, who cares if the process, who cares about whether you're going to get 24% efficiency out of your solar cells or 10? If you get 8% efficiency and the damn thing costs you peanuts, um, who cares? You just put more of them on the roof until you've got the power you want. I think, I think there's, there are possibilities here which are very, very interesting. I think that's what really strikes me about it. I think Gershenfeld is probably right. We will, as these technologies... Um, run on to maturity they will decentralise a lot of um, production of, of uh, manufacturing and, and uh, production of energy and lots of other things so I don't think we have a problem with clean energy, I really don't have a don't think we've got a problem. I've been talking to some people at the University of Turin who have this system for tapping the jet stream for people who don't know, the Earth's atmosphere equalises itself with a, a stream of very very fast air you know, 300, 400, 500 kilometres an hour, um, up around 10,000 metres. And the, there's enough energy flowing through the jet stream to run the entire human energy budget 100 times over. Um, the, the people at the University of Turin are working on generators that run on kites. The generator sits in a very convenient place, flat on the ground, the, the footprint is very, very much smaller than a conventional power station. It's just a tiny footprint compared to something like Hazelwood. And the, uh, they have computer-controlled kites that sit up there in the atmosphere where the winds are very high and the, there's a huge amount of energy. Um, much more energy density even than solar panels, much, much higher energy density. And they can drag out huge amounts of energy to at very, very low cost. They estimate that the electricity would be about, would cost about one thirtieth 
of the current cost of fossil fuel electricity. So we have huge amounts of energy accessible cheaply and this technology, I suspect, if, it, if it, they get half a chance, will mature in a very short time. There isn't anything really dramatic. They've already done demonstrations of the of the basic technology of the kite control systems um, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating technology. If you want to look it up on the website, it's WinGen, W-I-N-D-G-E-N. Um, very interesting people and I think uh, very interesting technology. I think the my sense is that our problem isn't technical. It's uh, there are possibilities out there with the right application, and we would we would be home free very quickly, and, uh, and in a way which would look after everyone on the planet. And it, um, you know, cheap energy means a lot of things. You know, it, one of the biggest problems of recycling materials like there's these mountains of old newspaper sitting around that nobody knows how to use because it costs too much in energy to, to actually recycle um, if, with access to very very cheap energy suddenly recycling a lot of things becomes economic and we have a, a possibility of really doing a lot to clean up the mess the messes we've made in various ways and I think that uh, I think the, you know, the key to it is getting cheap renewable energies into play and fortunately there are lots of ways to do it with the with the will and the you know reasonable intelligence and various places we can do it unfortunately reasonable intelligence is a fairly scarce resource um but <laughs> i don't know it'd be really nice to see it <laughs> well i think you made a good start oh thank you <laughs> thank you thank you brian lennon out of air water and coal we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Chemistry is creating new and more comfortable homes, giving you finer and yet vastly cheaper motor cars, better clothes, purer food, and sounder health. And that's all for this edition of Diffusion. If you have feedback, questions, comments or wild, passionate prayers, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Jackie Hayes and Mawson Karim. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us in your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.